Welcome to our classroom. In this space, we talk about education, which is inclusive of, but not limited to, what happens in schools. Education is taking place whenever and wherever we are willing to learn. I am your host, Roberto Germán, and our classroom is officially in session. In this episode of Our Classroom, we'll be talking about everything I learned about racism I learned in schools with Tiffany Jewell, a black biracial number one New York Times bestselling and number one indie bestselling author of this book is anti-racist and the anti-racist kid. She is a twin sister, first-generation American, cisgender mama, an anti-bias, anti-racist educator who has been working with children and families for two decades. She lives on the homeland of the Pukumtuk and the Nipmuc with her two young storytellers, husband, a turtle she's had since she was nine years old, and a small dog with a big personality. Welcome, Tiffany Jewell. Hey folks, welcome back to our classroom. I'm here with Tiffany Jewell, the author of This Book is Anti-Racist and the Anti-Racist Kid. And she is working on a new book. Lucky you, lucky you, and lucky me. We have Tiffany here and I'm excited. Tiffany is a wonderful person. I've known Tiffany for a number of years now. Been on panels with her, uh, done some conference organizing with her. I can just, you know, Montessori for social justice days. And I just been able to witness her work and her amazingness. And I've been able to witness her dancing to 90s songs. <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't dancing by herself, people. You know, I was there. Lorena was there. Others. It, it was kind of a impromptu dance party. And Tiffany got some moves. Tiffany got, you know, she she got some moves. Tiffany, Tiffany could get down. Get down. Uh, Tiffany, I'm I'm so glad to be here with you to connect with you. Love, love being around you. You have a wonderful presence in this. We have great conversations. And so I'm looking forward to chopping it up here. Thank you for taking the time to join me in our classroom. Thank you for having me. I I will take any opportunity I can to talk to you and talk to Lorena. <laughs> like you're my people. I love you. So thank you for having me. And we love you also. So I, I know you've been you've been dialing down. You've been digging in. You've been working diligently on your new book. Everything I learned about racism, I learned in schools. Ooh, ooh, ooh. You got us. <laughs> you got it. You're going you you already making some people mad, Tiffany. I know. You, I mean, everybody. You, here you go again, <laughs> trying to get another book banned. Ha <laughs> hey. oh, good grief. I mean, it's, that's not, no, I'm not like, if they just read my books, they would be like, oh, because we don't need to ban books. They're just stories that people it, are telling about their lives and we're learning a little more and we're all better because of these. But listen, no, no, they don't. Unfortunately, some some folks, some of the resistors, out there they don't take the time to listen they don't take the time to read the content that's being created and being and, and shared it happens with some of the clips i i put out from these interviews mm -hmm. and whatnot sometimes i get some quick reactions and it leaves me yeah. wondering did you actually listen to the entire episode <laughs> no no it's usually the title i think the title is like what jars people so much yes that like, i can't even get past it i don't want my kid reading this and you're like <laughs> 
well your kid wants to read it one and actually like it's really good it's just like these are books about humanity okay indeed indeed well listen this this book everything i learned about racism i learned in schools when did you have this revelation? <laughs> and, and, uh, all, and, and, and also, can you provide us with a status update on your book? Absolutely. So I'll do the status update first. Things are slow. Some of it's slow on my behalf. I am a fast writer, drafter, and then it's like garbage and messy. And I'm a slow reviser. <laughs> and I will take as many opportunities as I can to revise. Um you and, and I then, are similar in that sense. Yes, yes. And I think, you know, if because otherwise, if you're going to try to like write something perfect from the get go, like you're never going to finish yes. what you're doing at all. And then things are slow. So um, this book comes out with the Versify imprint, which is a part of HarperCollins. And Versify is run by three people. Oh only my. three people. Oh, my. Um, right? And one editor. And one assistant editor. And so my editor is incredible. And right now HarperCollins is on strike. Or a lot of the workers, mm. unionized workers are on strike. Because the CEO and the top HR person are not coming to the bargaining table and giving them, they're just, the, the workers are just asking for $5,000 raise. Because right now they make about $45,000 and they need $50,000 to live in New York City, especially. Oh, man. Because HarperCollins is even asking 50. people, right? I know, even if like, um, as but because HarperCollins is asking folks to come in and work from the office. Not everybody can be remote now either, and so they want that, and they also want um more safeguards around diversity and equity. You know, things that I'm not going to argue with. So, the assistant editor right now is a unionized worker who is on strike, and Wesley, the editor is doing a whole bunch of stuff and she's incredible, but she's overworked. Mm. Um, she was way before anyway, she's a black woman. So there's that too. Um, so right now, everything I learned about racism, I learned in school is projected to come out winter 2024. And hopefully it will it still, we'll see. Um, and a lot of the kind of holdup of things is not just like me and the editor, but um, there's like a paper shortage. So they're trying to get like the right price for paper, which is not something I've ever thought about. And there, um, the a lot of the design team, a lot of those um, folks are also unionized workers who are, are on strike. And um, we're looking for some an illustrator to do some illustrations in the book. And a lot of freelance illustrators are like, no, I'm not going to work with HarperCollins until the workers can have a fair contract. So there's a whole bunch of things um, slowing it down, which is okay because it gives me more time to revise. Right. There you go. There you go. Well, there's, there's so much going on there. And for, for all you aspiring authors, Here's a little tidbit. There's an inside look at some of the things that folks don't necessarily know that impact the process mm -hmm. of writing, creating, developing, publishing a book. Yeah. Layers and layers of of items and issues that can hinder the progress uh, or sometimes speed it up, depending on right. the context. Right. So thank yeah. you for sharing that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, publishing is just a hot mess in general. <laughs> like, Indeed. So, um, and then like this book came the, I was doing a talk for the Ed Collab, I think. Um, and they host like a a yearly or by like twice a year, I can't remember, virtual conference. And I was talking about kind of like different stories from my schooling journey and just a little bit. And while I was talking, I was like, oh, everything I learned about racism I learned in school. And like we had to pause for a moment because I was like, oh, wait a minute. That's like so true on so many levels. Um, And from there, I started really thinking about like my schooling journey from preschool to college and then as an as an educator, too. And I was like, I think I have a book here. (laughs) And that's kind of how it came about. There have been lots of different ways I've looked at this book and and things I've wanted to do or tried and some have worked and some haven't. And really the book is part memoir of like my schooling journey in mid-sized city of Syracuse, New York, which is like a super um, impoverished city. Like there's a high poverty rate. Mm. There's it's like been on list for like the worst place to live if you're like a black or brown person. Really. Um, and also like I had a really lovely childhood. Okay, <laughs> like I love my neighborhood. I love my um, friends at school. My family. Like I had like I'm a pretty ground. I was a pretty grounded kid. Um, but just like one of those places where Syracuse isn't unique. Like there are a lot of cities throughout our country who are like it. So stories that I have from my schooling journey I think other kids through many decades will see themselves in the story but then my favorite part of this book was when it dawned on me where I was like this this can't just be me like I I don't want to write books by myself anymore because like it shouldn't just be me and I wish more authors would like think, think of this too And so I got to pull in a bunch of my favorite authors and educators and share their stories. Like you are sharing two poems with Roberta or there's a poem and there's a song. And they kind of also like one of them like closes us, closes the book out. Um, I haven't even like shared with you like where things are going. (laughs) But it sets us up for our vision of what we want schooling to be like. Um, And Joanna Ho um, wrote a poem, Lorena shared some pieces that I've, I'm breaking out into things. Min Lei wrote a story about himself in elementary school. Um, Randy Rebai wrote a piece about just kind of like people always asking like, where are you from? No, where are you? Um, and microaggressions. And so just like reading everybody else's stories too, it was like, okay, like it affirmed that this is like a constant for us, like black and brown folks of the global majority um, throughout schooling and I think you know Tori Maldonado wrote this like great piece in his beautiful style of writing dialogue which is not something I can do that um, I definitely like have friends who had that same experience you know mm-hmm. and I know that kids are now um, and so it's kind of like a part memoir a part anthology and then there are also pieces of history that I'm pulling into it too, like the history of magnet schooling and the history of tracking 
or and what tracking is and um and the and military recruitment in schools. So looking at those things that really impact so many of us without really thinking about it. Um it's been really fun to research for the book too. No, it sounds amazing. And we're gonna yeah. talk about magnet schools in a moment, mm-hmm. but I I, I want to stay here in terms of yeah what you just laid out for us. The, the combination of things that you're doing with this book in terms of part memoir, part anthology, part part history, uh, I love it. And, and I'm eager to to see the final product. Yeah, me too. But I, but I want you to <laughs> I want you to talk more about why you feel it's important to take this approach in which you're really committed to doing more co-authoring because mm-hmm. uh, this is something that we've talked about uh, yep. you and I Lorena and and yeah I, I want you to share more about you know for you why that's yeah. important and why you think others should be considering a similar approach yeah so I am a I really enjoy working in community with other people and I, part of a lot of my teaching journey too, I've, I've been a co-teacher for so long. Um, mm. So even when I, when I started teaching at a early childhood center in West Philadelphia in my early twenties, I had co-teachers and I learned so much from them. And I learned more about who I was, like what my limitations were, what I could do. And moving into Montessori, I was a co-teacher for a long time before I had my own classroom. And I didn't love having my own classroom. Um, I did and I didn't because I I really love that um, learners and kids can like go to, they'll see themselves in one of the adults in the room, right? And if you don't, if you don't relate to one, then it kind of sucks if you're the only one, that's the only adult you have to spend your time with. And so with writing, one, like writing is a very lonely thing. You're doing it on your own. A lot of times it's like in your own space. For me, it's like a corner in the bedroom. This is like, this is my bedroom, (laughs) a corner of the bedroom. Like my kids are usually at school when I'm writing. Maybe the dog's going to keep me company. Maybe not. Like, and so um, to be able to work on a book with other folks is really lovely and enjoyable so kind of all the things that I have coming for the future and been working on proposals are all with other authors Mm. and and other folks and I also think you know like my book's a New York Times bestseller like that's an accolade that people are like it's really important for some people and so I can like include authors who don't have that or who are up and coming um, and make space for other folks because I shouldn't be the only one and I Mm. I get really frustrated when I see like authors like continually being like the only one um because in our society like we uplift a few without like looking at the collection of people behind them or with them that or that could be with them and so I I don't want to be one of those people who like is always like yes I am the greatest and let's leave everybody else behind or and not even like thinking about that, but being lifted up. I want a, as many people to come as possible. Um, and so that has been, it can't just be me. Like, and I also look at, like, if you look at me, people are always like, what are you? Like, I'm so light, <laughs> black biracial, like that I will get things easier than folks who are darker mm. than me too. And so 
um, recognizing like where my privilege and power is and like being able to redistribute that however I can uh, is really important to me. Mm-hmm. I can't like write about solidarity and have and for young people and not show them what it actually means. Like that's yes. totally unfair. Yes, yes. Oh, that's dope. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for sharing that, for being honest and also just in, encouraging others right because yeah. we, we we do see that we we do see where there are many individuals that are come across a big platform mm-hmm. uh huge opportunities get a bestseller and and then it it's it's almost like hey you know kind of stiff arming others yeah. yeah in order to maintain this newfound fame power whatever however we want to frame it right and i think it's critical for us to continue to come back to this notion of community Mm -hmm. because i think part of how we dismantle these systems is by not only remaining in community but growing in community absolutely yep right and how can i how can we grow if we're not investing in each other Yep. Supporting each other and opening doors for each other. Right. Each one teach one. Right. I'm extending my arm. You're extending your arm. So part of the reason I created this platform is because I wanted I I didn't want anybody to dictate what Mm -hmm. I'm doing. I didn't want anybody to dictate who I'm bringing onto my show. I want to bring on whoever I want to bring on. But part of it is that I want to bring on and highlight individuals. Yes, I have individuals like you that, you know, have have had great success and wonderful mm-hmm. platforms right and and I'm using success very broadly right yep because there are other individuals that have also had success and maybe not success defined by the mainstream but right. have been successful in what they are doing whether as classroom teachers or school leaders or whatever the case may be uh successful in impacting their community mm-hmm. Right. All of those things are important. And so we should be highlighting those individuals also. That's part of what I'm trying to do is like amplify the voices and stories of individuals that perhaps are not getting the shine amongst uh, the masses. Right. But but the people that see them, they know what time it is. Right. And and thinking too, like, how can we do things differently? Right. Like, Let's not do things the way they've always done because they're clearly not working for us. So why are we trying to like fit ourselves in these like very specific tiny roles when we can be doing it differently? And really like writing, working with a bunch of people in a book, like it's just something that I feel like is starting to become a way of doing things in publishing and it's still super rare. You know, I think of the like the blackout crew and like Tiffany Jackson and Danielle Clayton and all of those. And they have written like beautiful stories together that come together. But like, where else do we have all of our stories collected if it's not just an anthology where like we're actually like, I don't know. So I'm excited for future projects that I hope some some publisher will want to publish. And if not, we'll figure out how to do it on our own. That's right. That's right. (laughs) That's what time we're on. Yep. So let, let's let's come back to what you're working on in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, not come back because we, we, we're on it. We're on it. But I, I, I want to I want us to talk about and think about 
this notion of all the things that you learned about racism you learned in schools mm -hmm. and it got me it got me questioning like were there was it all negative or did you have any educators or experiences that taught you about racism in a proactive manner yeah so i wasn't explicitly taught about racism okay not that i can remember Mm. it's like really hard for me to pull it out of a memory um, like, there was never no lessons no hey we're gonna stop and talk about this situation current events and how it's mm -mm. in wow not de definitely not in elementary school or middle school pretty sure it didn't happen in high school either. well of course i mean that's understandable racism didn't exist and when you were in elementary <laughs> yeah. school middle school or high school However, I always think of um, Enid Lee's book, Letter to, Letters to Marcia, which is a, an anti-racist teaching book, and it was published in 1985. And so I started school in 1984. So I'm like, it wasn't that, you know, like she wasn't coming up with something out of the blue. <laughs> so sorry, teachers, but um, maybe maybe it hadn't come to Syracuse then. <laughs> like, I, I think it was more than just Syracuse. You know, and so part of like writing this book I've been doing, I did so much research and it was like reading through um, newspaper articles that reflected like school board meetings from like the 1960s and 1970s and 1980s and, and 1990s. And um, yeah, it's this like history just keeps cycling itself. So I had no teachers who explicitly taught me about racism, but I had a lot of teachers who like did it without <laughs> trying to <laughs> like I so I wrote the one story in this book is anti-racist about my third grade teacher who was like very overtly racist in like the way mm. she treated kids the way she talked about our community um so there was her but then there's also like the ways I think of in fourth grade we learned about local history and we learned about like the Onondagas of the Iroquois nation, right? Like it was called the Iroquois nation, even though that's not what they called themselves. They call themselves the Haudenosaunee. Um, and so one, like the ways that we learned to talk about people. Um, and then we learned about the Onondagas as if they were like people of the past, even though like we could take a bus to the reservation. When I was in middle school, we could ride our bikes to the reservation. Like it wasn't that far at all. There was a school, there is a school right on the reservation. Like we could have had tribal council, you know, come into our classroom. We could um, not to like also recognize that like there were kids, Onondaga kids in, in our school community, um, living in our neighborhoods. Like we knew, we knew that we knew them. We, um, and so just like the ways we learned about people of the past. And I remember I was the kid who, when we were asked to like celebrate Columbus day, I wrote a poem about how awful he was. <laughs> And my teacher was like, um, okay, like they didn't know what to do with it. And then, you know, I can't, it was either fourth, fifth or sixth, it was like upper elementary. And I was like, Columbus, what did you do? Like, what did you think you were doing? Um, and so I had those moments where I would bring something up and my teachers just didn't know how to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so because I was like a good, quiet student, they would just be like, okay, because I wasn't like 
rabble rousing, right? Like I right, wasn't right. going to um, sh- get everybody else, you know, I wasn't organizing like walkouts or anything. I would have if I had knew I could. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, and so I was doing those things and, and the teachers just like having no reaction to, to what I was doing told me like, that they didn't really know what was happening too. And like, it's not in the eighties and nineties, like we didn't t- talk a lot about racism until Rodney King. Mm-hmm. And then it was kind of like, like you couldn't not talk. You had to talk about it. And the OJ trial. And the OJ trial. Right. Boom. Like, in, and I like, I watched a lot of TV. So I watched a lot. Like I saw all those things happening and the same with the first Iraq war. Like we watched that happen. And then we also listened to how people were talking about um, people from Western Asia and Iraq and like all, all like that whole region. And I, you know, like my teachers still couldn't talk about it, even though it was like happening and then they were getting language. Like they just didn't know what to do and so their silence told me you know their silence taught me that like it was supposed to be okay to not you know to not talk about things or push them aside um to have a racist an overtly racist teacher in the classroom taught me like that was okay to have like my um and then there were like all the other things too like when I re- reflect and I write in the book about my AP European history teacher in high school how he like posted our grades on the wall every week and just really pushed us to compete against each other instead of working collaboratively right like it would have been so much um better if we could work collectively um and so all those things kind of led me to be like, oh, my God, like everything, like, of course, I learned about racist stuff outside of school, but school was where we go to learn. And so we learned that it's either OK. And where you and where you spent the majority of your time. Spent the majority of our time. My school was um, one of those schools that was considered racially imbalanced. And so we were had predominantly black and brown students. Um, predominantly black students in our school. It was like 53% black students. And the New York state mandate at the time was that you shouldn't have any more than 45%, which is a problem, right? Like they're like no school in this, in the state should have a majority of black kids and families. It's wild. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, the mandate's different. Now the mandate changed like in the late later nineties to reflect neighborhoods more like schools should be reflective of the neighborhoods without addressing like redlining or any of those issues <laughs> too um but it was like one of those things I went to a racially imbalanced school and when I looked up like articles about my school like my school was also we weren't just racially imbalanced but we were labeled as deficient because of our test scores so like all of these things which had like our teachers and the news media, like believing our school was like worth less mm. than the other schools that were racially balanced or had more white kids that had better test scores. Because I'm like, you know, in the the ways that the they talked about why we didn't have good test scores, because the parents didn't care because, oh, like, the, you know, like all those things. And I'm like, or the tests just aren't made for us. 
like we don't understand tennis you know like to have something a story about tennis or a story about like some white white person from history that we're not familiar with like right so yeah i play pickleball now by the way oh who doesn't i mean i don't but <laughs> no, like my family you, you know does. but it's like <laughs> i'm saying that because your point stands like i didn't know anything about tennis growing up uh, you know, I know a little bit now because of Serena and right, Venus, right, right, and Coco, right, and Naomi. We had we had Arthur Ashe, right, but I do not ever remember watching him play. Nor did nor do I because I didn't I, know who he was until like after afterwards. Right, right. And the story I only ever heard about him was about him having AIDS. Right, like I didn't hear yes. about him being a, a great tennis star until it was like later. Yeah. And, it, and it's funny because I mentioned that because yeah, I know about pickleball now and whatnot and, and a bit about tennis, but it also reflects like my access at this stage of my life. Right. 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 You know, but growing up in the hood in, in Lawrence, Massachusetts, it was, yep. it was without like, nah, social media, right? Like we didn't what, have the internet or social media. Right, right, right. And so, you know, it's it's interesting how you have people that will not acknowledge these things, right? They they right. won't acknowledge the disparities. They won't acknowledge mm -hmm. how the disparities impact different people, groups, different communities. Right. And yet we're offering real experiences, our ex lived experiences right. yeah. that speak directly to this. Yep. That are incredibly valid, right? Like our experiences are valid, even if you as an educator don't relate to them at all as a white educator. I thankfully we had a black principal and a black vice principal. And so they like we had them, but all of our teachers were white and so white. I think the only black teacher at our elementary school was the like ISS lady, you know, mm -hmm. and like mm -hmm. she knew she knew us all and we knew her. Um and it was but almost she, like, hey, you know, like, send me to ISS so I can right? hang with her. Right. Because sometimes you have that. Showed love. Some, she showed love. She showed love. Sometimes yeah. you have. Listen, I'm saying this from my experiences in, in the roles that I served in as, as school leader. And some of those roles, yep. unfortunately, I was like, over, you know, dean of discipline or whatever, whatever. That yep. wasn't the title, but but you yep. know what it was. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes, you know, kids want to kick it with Mr. Hedermong. It's like. Yep. Yeah. All right, you know, let's you know, let's try to find some other ways uh, for, for like, us come to come visit me when you're not sent to me. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other problem. Like teachers shouldn't be sending kids out of the classroom. Right. That's like a whole other conversation yes, for yes, another indeed. day. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. As always, your engagement in our classroom is greatly appreciated. Be sure to subscribe, rate the show, and write a review. Finally. For resources to help you understand the intersection of race, bias, education, and society, go to multiculturalclassroom.com. Peace and love from your host, Roberto Germán.